Hello, and welcome to the First Baptist Hanford podcast. Our primary mission at FBH is to love God, love people, and serve the world. We hope that this weekly podcast will encourage you in your daily walk with Christ as we play for you our most recent sermon audio. Let's have a listen. Uh, we're happy you're here with us, especially if you're a guest with us this morning. We're excited that you're here and, and you came at a, uh, at a great time. We're just launching into our brand new series. series. We started it last week. Obviously, it's entitled I Am He, and we're taking a look at the entire Gospel of John. And so from last week all the way uh, until Christmas season, until the Christmas season, we're going to be doing a, uh, I would say, a medium dive uh, into the book of John, uh, because there's other pastors who have spent over two and a half years digging through the gospel of John, and so they're obviously way better than I am. Um, but that being said, uh, last week we, we really did a, uh, an overview of the entire gospel of John, so it was a 30,000-foot view of the entire uh, gospel, and we tried to we tried to give some context as to what was going on at the time of of this specific uh, letter being written. But today we get to take our first dive into the book. So if you have your Bibles with us, uh, it shouldn't be a shock to you as to where we're starting. We're going to go to John chapter one, verse one. You can put your thumb there, finger there. Uh, make sure you're screen doesn't shut down on your phone if you're doing it digitally, whatever it is. We're going to get there in just a sec. As you're doing that, I wanted to share two, uh, two quick stories with you. So I get the pleasure of uh, actually taking all of, my, all of my kids, well, the four kids that are in school, to school every day. Um, and it is a really good blend of fun and chaos and anger, all like wrapped in to one, <laughs> to one little bundle um, there and so you know we're we're uh, we're like doing our best to comb down calyx and you know make sure that there's a good mix in their lunch of food that they will eat and food that they should eat right um, and uh, then we're throwing them into the car not literally all the time but we're getting them into the car um, and uh, and we're getting them them off to school and usually on the way to school we're doing one of a couple things it's either you know it's just me and my four of my boys in there we're either um you know listening to music which is i mean we were listening to christmas music a couple weeks ago and i was like i don't know why we're doing that it's 107 outside but okay fine we'll listen to some christmas music specifically christmas or uh, the the chipmunks christmas album so if you really want to be annoyed listen to christmas music by the chipmunks when it's 107 degrees outside um so anyway, it's either that or they're telling us some sort of story. They're telling me some sort of story um, on their way. With this particular day, uh, one of my kids, as we're driving to school, he's like, Dad, can we, can we pray for my friend? Right? And so like as a dad, as a Christian, as a pastor, I'm like freaking out. I'm like, yeah, absolutely. We can pray for your friend, especially as a pastor. I'm like, maybe I can use this in a message sometime. I don't know. And lo and behold, here we are. Um, but, uh, but so I'm, I, I asked him, I was like, hey, buddy, so what's, what's going on with your friend? And he goes on to tell me the story of his friend and, and just the, the weight, the burden that his friend has in his life as a really young kid and how difficult it is for him. And that same weight, that same burden was on his heart as well. And so he was like, you know what we need to do? Dad, can we just, it would be so helpful if we just prayed for my friend. 
And I was like, yeah, man, let's do it. So I had him pray and man, just like the purest prayer, right? Of just like a kid who's, who's under the age of 10, just like, God, Jesus, just, we, just help him. Just help. I mean, he just kept returning to just help him. And so I drop him off and I'm just like giving myself high fives in the car. I'm like, yeah, we're doing something right. Let's go. Right. And so uh, eight hours later, I got home and I'm so pumped up about the whole thing. And then uh, my kids are playing on the trampoline, all five of them. Um, I'm sure that's not a safety hazard or anything like that. There's a net around it that's mostly intact, so it's fine. Um, and so they're all playing on the trampoline. I look out, and the same kid who, who just had the most thought-provoking prayer the entire time, I look up, and just out of anger, I see anger in his face, he just ninja kicks his brother as hard as he can in the leg. I was like, what just happened right now? What happened to that sweet little kid just like cry, like pouring his heart out to the Lord? What happened to you? Where did you go? And the reason I share these two stories is, is because really this is the condition of our, our hearts as humans, right? So often we get into a point where we're just like, man, I, I'm just, I'm killing it in my walk with God. I'm praying, I'm reading my Bible, I'm in a small group, I'm serving, I'm going to church, I'm doing all these things. Man, the only preset I have in my car is K-Love Radio. That's it. Like, and we feel so good about ourselves, so good about our walk with Christ. And then eight hours later, let's be real, eight minutes later, let's be real, eight seconds later, Right? All of a sudden, we find ourselves in a state where, where we don't want to be, that we find ourselves in a state of sinfulness. We recognize that, man, I am so messed up that regardless of the things that I do, regardless of the good that I do, I am just still a sinful person. It's my natural reaction. It's naturally who I am because of the sin nature that I inherited so long ago. And I'm hoping this isn't just relegated to my kids. We as humans are all incredibly sinful. Everyone is. I don't care how shiny your shoes are. I don't care how well-groomed your hair is this morning. I don't care. Every single one of us in this room, we are good in our eyes one minute, and the next we are sinful, selfish people. It's the reality. It's me it's everybody on our, on our staff. It's every single one of you sitting out here. No one is better than anybody else. We are all broken and sinful people before the Lord. There are some of us in here who've been at church a long time. I fall into that category. You have, you know, the act. We have uh, that act that we put on as Christians on Sunday mornings down pretty pat. Right? You step out of your car that you just got an argument with your spouse in about parking outside or something like that or doing a rolling stop. We got a hand raise here. Wasn't asking for a confession. <laughs> and then we walk in and then we walk in and, you know, everything's rainbows and unicorns. And man, it's great. We're doing so good. We're doing so good. And in reality, inside, we're just broken, sinful people. And there's others of you who are new to church. And you're just trying to figure out who Jesus is. You don't know who he is yet. There's this whole like mystery surrounding him. You're like, okay, I, I, I understand I need to get my life together. And someone told me that if I need to get my life together, I should go to church. And so because of that, at church, then I heard about this guy named Jesus. Well, who is Jesus? Why is this guy going to help me get my life together? 
Why is that the case? And so regardless of where you're at, of like a seasoned veteran, or you're a rookie, to use NFL terms as we start the season today, regardless of where you're at in this spectrum of faith, John in the first 18 verses is gonna make some massive claims about who Jesus is. And with those massive claims, there are repercussions for every single one of us, regardless of where you are on the spectrum. These first 18 verses of John is known as the prologue. It's the prologue. And so John, what he's doing here is these claims, he is setting a framework for the entirety of his gospel. And we talked last week a little bit about who John's audience was. It was non-believing Jews largely. Now this translates well to us because the fact that when John wrote this, actually the vast majority of people uh, that he was writing to never saw Jesus because because it had taken so long, the the writing of this gospel was so far removed from Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection. So largely we have this massive group of people that John is writing to. They have no context for who Jesus is outside of the tall tales that are probably being told. And so Jesus, or, or John now, writes this gospel to these people. And, and his statement, his purpose is incredibly clear. His, his statement is John 20, 31. We talked about this last week. It's not gonna be on the screen, but if you want a reminder as to why John wrote this book, this is why he wrote the book. He said, these are written, these stories is what he's talking about, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the entire purpose of the gospel of John. The entire purpose of the gospel of John. So we need to dig into that a little bit. We need to recognize if that's the purpose of the gospel of John, John is going to then consistently be reminding his audience of Jesus's divinity. He's gonna be reminding them of the fact that Jesus is God. If we look at the first five verses there, it says this, in the beginning was the word and the word was God. And the word was with God and the word was God, excuse me. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So the word is Jesus himself. You'll recognize if you have your Bibles open, the W on word is capitalized. John is hearkening back to an Old Testament understanding that as he is talking to the, as he's writing this gospel to those who are Jewish, they would have been familiar with the Old Testament. They would have been familiar with the prophets. They would have been familiar with the law. They would have been familiar with the creation narrative in Genesis. So he's echoing part of that creation narrative in Genesis 1.1, where it talks about in the beginning, So he says the same thing here in verse one, in the beginning, but he doesn't just stop with the idea of of God creating. He talks about something that's called the word. And so the word in this sense is Jesus is what they're talking about. Jesus is the word here. That word specifically would have tied the idea of Jesus, a divine being back to the Old Testament law. Those two words would have been used together That word is logos in the Greek. And so logos would have been used to denote, some people would have used it to denote the law in the Old Testament. 
Well, Jesus is going to, or John, excuse me, is going to use it to describe Jesus in the New Testament. So now we have John who's using this wonderful way to kind of stitch these two things together of the Old Testament and the Savior of the world going hand in hand perfectly using the same word, one being capitalized, the other not being capitalized. But in verse one, John said, we heard him, we saw him, we looked on him with with a steadfast gaze, we touched Jesus. Remember, John is, is looking back to everything that had happened for those three years that Christ walked the earth. And so John is just reminding, like, look, we touched him, we heard him, we saw him. And this incredible awareness came to them as they were just, they were listening to Jesus talk and they were listening to the authority in which Jesus taught that God was speaking to them. And as they were looking at Jesus, they were looking at God. And as they touched Jesus, they were touching God. And as they embraced Jesus, they were embracing God. And if we put all of that together, we can recognize then that Jesus is co-equal with the Father. Jesus is co-equal with the Father. Now this gets messed up in our heads sometimes, right? This gets messed up in our heads sometimes because of the fact we talk about that uh, Jesus is God's son. And if we look at normative culture, we would recognize that my sons are under the authority of whom? My wife, correct, but also me, okay? They're under the authority, they're under our authority as their parents, This is not the case here. This is not the case. Jesus and God are co-equal. And this is one of the emphasis that John has in his gospel. He wants us to know that Jesus is God the Son. That is not that he is less than God, that is equal with God. He is God, yet they're they're, they're distinctly separate here. And on other, other occasions, if you're well-read in your Bible, on other occasions, you'll recognize that Jesus even refers to the Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost, whatever vernacular you want to use. That's what he's talking to. He alludes to him in other points in the gospel. But at this point in the gospel, John is focusing on, focusing on the Father and the Son. He's focusing on Jesus's divinity. He's focusing on the, focusing on the fact that Jesus is God. But if we got back into the idea of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, we would recognize that Trinity is usually the term that we use to be able to describe that. An important little nugget, Trinity, the word Trinity, the phrase Trinity is never used in your Bibles. It is never once used in your Bibles. There is evidence of the Trinity. There is the doctrine of the Trinity, but that word Trinity was used later on to describe God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit as co-equal. We can recognize that um, in Deuteronomy 6.4, that God is, the Trinity describes God as both one and three. So Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Okay, good. We can recognize that God. We have a God. That's perfect. There's only one God. Yet from the very beginning, God revealed himself as one being, one God. That is a unity of three persons. Because then you could rewind back to Genesis 1, 26, and it says, then God said, let us make mankind in our own image, in our likeness so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. The us there is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are distinct from one another. 
So the Father is not the Son, nor the Holy Spirit. The Son is not the Father, nor the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is not the Father, nor the Son. Yet the Father is God. Jesus is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. And I'm going to stop explaining it there, because that's just about all I can explain it. It is one of the most difficult doctrines for us as humans to be able to wrap our minds around because it doesn't make sense to us. You're like, oh, I can describe it. It's like a, it's like a three-leaf clover, right? We have God as one branch and, and Jesus is one branch and the Holy Spirit is another branch. You're like, no, it, it's not the same thing though because all those things aren't distinct in nature. Well, okay, okay. Well, then I have, uh, how about water? We got steam and we have liquid and then we have a solid. There are three different states, but they're one as far as their makeup, their chemical makeup goes and that sort of thing. That falls short of the explanation though as well. And so the Trinity, we have to recognize there is a ton there. And I wish I could camp here for like seven weeks, but I'm pretty sure y'all would leave after about an hour. So we can't get to all of it, but no, there is a ton of meat left on the bone when it talks about the doctrine of Trinity, the doctrine of uh, the Trinity. But what we need to recognize from this and from this text specifically is that Jesus and God are indeed co-equal. So as we continue through the passage, another thing that we need to understand is Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is the light of the world. John 1, 6 to 11. It says this, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. This right now is not talking about the, the author. This is talking about John the Baptist, John the baptizer, the one who came before Jesus to proclaim who he is. Verse seven, he came as a witness to, to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world. And though the world was made through him, back to creation, the world was made through him. The world was made through Jesus. The world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. The life gives light. The life that Jesus has and the life he shares with those who follow him gives them light, gives them life. The light that comes from new, spiritual, eye-opening life, the life that gives sight to the blind, the life that gives sight to not just the physically blind, but the spiritually blind, eternal life gives light to eternal sight. That's what they're talking about here. Jesus being the light of the world means the world has no other light other than him. It doesn't say Jesus is a light of the world. It doesn't say Jesus is one of the lights of the world. It says Jesus is the light of the world, singular. Jesus is the light of the world. If there's going to be light for the world, it will be him. It will be Jesus. It is Jesus or darkness, period. And that's what John's trying to get at here. There is no alternative. There is no other light. It means then that all the world and everyone in it needs Jesus as what? Their light. That's it. Because outside of Jesus, it's strictly darkness. It means that the world was made for this light. This isn't a foreign light. This isn't a light that came after he recognized how terrible everything was going and came in like a superhero and was like, don't worry guys, I'll be your light from now on. This light is not a foreign light. This is a light that helped create the entire world. The world was put into existence, existence in him and through him. 
That's the light that it is talking about here. And when this light comes, it not only makes uh, sin plain, it not only makes sin, sin plain to see, rather, it, it, it allows us to recognize that our sin is foreign and our sin is ugly. That our sin is the foreign piece. Darkness is the foreign piece to creation, not the light. This world was made to be illuminated by his light. That was the original intention. The illumination of this world comes from Christ alone. And again, there is so much. Please go back and read and get, find some notes online, blueletterbible.org. If you're looking for a great insight, that's a great one for you. But go back and read these 18 verses because there is some doctrinal density that is going on here that we can barely scratch the surface for. So we're going to keep moving. We're going to skip over verses 12 and 13 for a second. We're going to come back to them in a minute. So in verses 14 and 15, John's gospel actually reveals to us that Jesus, who is Jesus? Jesus is the son full of grace and truth. Jesus is the son full of grace and truth. So I know this morning's gonna feel like drinking out of, out of a fire, fire hydrant because of the fact that there's these massive claims that John just keeps throwing out there. He's gonna keep lobbing them out there. Jesus is God. Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is, is, is the son full of grace and truth. Now we could spend four weeks talking about this point alone, the idea of being full of grace and truth. But in 14 and 15 is where we find that evidence. It says this, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The theological ramifications of that verse are massive. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That means God literally stepped down and became like us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. John 15, John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Again, that's hearkening back to John the Baptist. But verse 14 is massive. We need to enter in uh, to this verse, recognizing this is one of the most single, most important events in all of human history. Is that the word, the son became human without ceasing to be God. He became human and never stopped being God at the same time. The word became flesh, that is the divine word, the divine son of God became a human without ceasing to be God. This is what, uh, in theological terms, the theological term for this is the hypostatic union. For those of you in here who want bonus points for vocabulary words, hypostatic union is what this is called. And it's the idea that, okay, Jesus was both God and man. That's fine. We can have like 50% God, 50% man, knock it out, no big deal. But that's actually not what the doctrine of the hypostatic union says. He says that, it says that Jesus was 100% man which means he 100% can relate to everything that you and I deal with on a regular basis. He can 100% relate to the temptation that we have on a regular basis. He 100% can be killed. He 100% can be man. Everything that you and I deal with, he dealt with. There is nothing new under the sun. 
He has dealt with it. He felt it. So he is 100% man. And then there's this other side of things that we need to recognize that he's also 100% God. Which means that as he was on earth, he temporarily set aside the privileges of deity, his God powers, temporarily set some of those things, set some of those things aside, but never once stopped being God. Never once stopped being God. And so the idea that he was just maybe, and there's, there's other beliefs that say this, there's other uh, um, church places that say this, places of worship that say this, is the idea that, okay, God was a man and him just being born as a man and a baby and, and born in a barn and eventually, you know, uh, growing up that God found favor with him. And once God found favor with him, he got turned into a God. And in the same way that he can be turned into a God, if you're good enough, you can also be turned into a God. That is false. That is not true. It's why we spend so much time in the Christmas season talking about the idea of Jesus coming to earth because he stepped out of the privileges of deity, stepped out of, of, his, of, of the heavens to take on flesh and dwell among us. He is a 100% God and a 100% man. But beyond that, we have to recognize that he didn't just come as God and man and holds those two things in tension, he also comes into the world full of both grace and truth. So you wanna struggle with something else, okay, let's talk about God's attributes then. Okay, what is God? Who is God? What are things that are some of his attributes? Well, two attributes of God that he is 100% of both of those is he is both 100% gracious and also 100% truthful. The the glory of God in Christ is, is his gracious disposition to us and without compromising his truthfulness. So he's both gracious and he's truthful. The glory of, uh, of Jesus is, is full of graciousness towards us sinners, towards all of us without once compromising God's truth. Being full of grace really is, it's, it's incredibly good news, especially for us. Because if Jesus came simply full of truth, we're all damned to hell. And if Jesus came simply full of grace and allowed us to, to not recognize where the truth is, then we're gonna continue to live in our sinful depravity. And so those two things have to be held together perfectly. He's incredibly gracious to us. And the word, the word of God, Jesus becoming flesh, came simply to be gracious to us. He came simply to be gracious to us. He became flesh so that his graciousness to us would come hand in hand with God's truthfulness, though, as well. And this will not be a, a wishy-washy kind of uh, flowery, unprincipled, sentimental type of grace. This is righteous, God-exalting, costly grace. That's what this is. The word became flesh so that the death of Christ would be possible. Hear that, the, the, that the word became, became flesh so that the death of God, the death of Christ would be be possible. The cross is where the fullness of grace shines most brightly in all of scripture. It is a heartbreaking, beautiful act of grace. And it comes to life on the cross. 
It was performed there. It was purchased there. But it is more than Christ conquering death so we can simply go on living our lives however we want to live our lives. God is gracious to us, and at the same time he's gracious to us, he's truthful to himself. So when the Son comes, he is full of grace and truth. He, man, I, I mean, grace upon grace is what it talks about. John Piper puts it this way. When Christ died, God was true to himself because sin was punished, truth. Sin was punished. And when Christ died, God was gracious to us because Christ bore the punishment, not us. Grace and truth. So Christ bearing our sin satisfied the wrath of God and at the same time showed graciousness to those who call him Savior. Man, we're talking some like lofty, big ideas here. And so I'm telling you, if you're not reading through the book of John as we're going through this series, you need to be because it is so dense and rich and full of this, the of this theology and full of this doctrine. And so who else is Jesus then? Because if Jesus was full of grace and truth, we also need to recognize then that Jesus made God known. Jesus made God known. John 1, 16 to 18, out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. Okay, I'm gonna stop here for a second because a lot of us have probably heard the term grace upon grace. And we think to ourselves, oh, that just means a whole lot of grace. Well, yeah, I guess it could in, you know, the context maybe that you guys are using it. But the idea that John is talking about grace upon grace here, out of his fullness, out of Christ's fullness of grace and truth, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. Okay, so if we receive grace and we recognize the grace that we're talking about, is Jesus going to the cross to die for our sins? then what is the grace he's talking about before? Well, we need to remember to consider the audience that this is being written to. The audience that this is being written to is unbelieving Jews. And unbelieving Jews have already received grace. The grace that they have received is the law. Saying, hey, if you do all these things, if you do all these sacrifices, if you do every single thing that I ask you to do, you will be righteous. So they see that as grace already. So when John talks about the fact that, man, we get grace on top of grace that we've already received, that's great. I'm super happy about that. We don't understand that context, though, because we have never lived under the law alone. All we have lived under, if you call Jesus your Savior, is grace, not grace upon grace. So Jesus says, out of his fullness, we've all received grace in place of grace already given. 17, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Grace upon grace, law, Jesus. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with father, with the father has made him known. The wording here talks about in the Greek, it talks about the idea of Jesus and God being face to face. That's how it talks about this idea. It's even hearkening back up to the, the thought of being co-equal. See, if you actually look at all of John, uh, John 1 through 18 in the prologue, he writes in a specific structure where the first five verses actually go along with the last two verses. And you can work your way down all the way till you get to the middle. And the reason that I skipped verses 12 and 13 is because of the fact that that is the crux of the entire prologue. 
So let's read, it says, yet to all who did receive him, to all who did receive Christ, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not out of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. In short, because of who Jesus is, we can be children of God. That's what, that's what the entire prologue is working towards. If you look at it, here's another term for it. It's called the chiastic structure. Look it up. You can see how the entire prologue starts here, works its way up to a peak with verses 12 and 13, and then descends again. It's incredible the way that John, had, John you know, inspired by the Spirit, was able to put these things together. So the crux of the entire thing, the entire thing that John is getting us to understand with all these massive claims about who Jesus is, is he's saying, look, Jesus is all of these things. And because Jesus is all of these things, you and I, we get to be children of God. It's absolutely incredible the way that, is, that this is written, written. So because of the fact that Jesus is co-equal with God the Father, because of the fact that Jesus is light of the world, because of the fact that Jesus is full in grace of truth, because of the fact that Jesus came to make the Father known, we all get an opportunity then to be children of God. So the question remains is, what does that mean for you? What does that mean for you? It's no accident that verse 12 to 13 describe being born again. And verse 14 describes seeing the glory of the Son of God. If you remember back in verse 4, it says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. When new spiritual life is given, new light happens. When new spiritual life is given, new light happens. The light's not a physical light. It is a spiritual brightness of the glory of the Son of God that was referred to back in verse 14. That's how come we see. That's how as people who are believers, who call Jesus their Savior and follow him every single day of their life, that's how we see. Because we are in turn a reflection of that light. That's who we then get to be. And how does that new spiritual life happen to us? Verse 13 says it happens when we're born not of man, but of God. It happens by being born again. That's how we come to faith. That's how we receive Christ and become children of God. To go back to verse 12, we become children of God by the gospel, by understanding and following who he is, by hearing the story of Jesus by recognizing his saving deeds, by recognizing his words, God creates in us spiritual life. We are born of God through the gospel. And that's new spiritual life. That's how it sees the light. That's how it, that's how it sees the glory of Christ. It does so immediately. That's why later on in John chapter eight, it calls it the light of life. When you're given spiritual life, you see spiritual glory. In other words, we're the children of God because this life and light and belief and receiving are our right to be children of God. But it's nothing that we have done. And that's what we need to point out this morning. 
Man, if you're bootstrapping, if you're like, you know what, if I can pull myself up on my bootstraps one more time, if I can get my life together, man, if I could, if I could just stop cussing more, please do your best to stop cussing more. If I could just stop drinking, if I could just stop being angry, if I could just stop you know, fill in the blank with whatever need, whatever sin issue that you have that is just festering at you, that consistently comes your way, consistently comes our way. I deal with them. You deal with them. We all deal with them. So let's stop pretending that we're these shiny, perfect people. We all deal with these issues and we have to recognize it's not about you getting better. It's about what Christ already did for you. And so because the fact that Christ, God, Jesus came full of grace and truth, we get to live in that grace and move towards that truth every single day because we now have the right to be called children of God, not because of what you have done, not because of what I have done, but because of what Jesus came to do and did and it's done. That's it. As we walk through the gospel of John, we are gonna consistently land at what every gospel is about. Every single gospel, regardless of who it's written to, regardless of, of who it's written by, whatever it, whatever it may be, every single gospel is about the good news of Christ and how his sacrifice, listen to this, how his sacrifice leads to our righteousness. That's what every single gospel is about. So if you are sick and tired of hearing about the fact that you're a new creation in Christ, that you're a new creation in God, that you can't do anything on your own apart from Christ, you're gonna be real bored this series because we are consistently going to push back into the fact, push back into the idea that Jesus is God. He came to earth, he died and conquered death so we could be made whole again. That's it. That's the gospel of John. Don't come the next 10 weeks, I guess, because I wrapped the whole thing up. I don't know. But this prologue has massive theological implications because there are massive lofty claims that John makes about Jesus. And I would encourage you, if you're not in a small group, jump in one. If you are in a small group, man, dig deeper into verses one through 18. You wanna know who Jesus is? Read verses one through 18 and then read it again, and then read it again. And through the 15 weeks of study, it's gonna take you to get through the implications, the theological implications of verses one through 18. So I would say, regardless of where you are on the spectrum, from praying to, for your friend in the car to ninja kicking your, your friend in, in the leg, there is something for all of us here to recognize that it doesn't matter how good you are. It doesn't matter what you do, the prayers you say, how greasy and combed over your hair is. It has everything to do with Christ and what he's already accomplished in our behalf. Amen, church? Let's pray. Father, thankful for you, thankful for your son, thankful for the gospel of John and just the way that it is completely and totally wrecking me as I work my way through it. Father, I pray that there would be a burden in our lives to know who Jesus is. And that as we do our best to understand that, we would recognize the more we understand who he is, the less that I have to do to feel like I've got my life together. That it's not about doing more to make you happy. It's about doing more because we know that it makes you happy. We don't have to do that. You sent your son on our behalf so we can be righteous.
And Father, I know there's people in here who have not yet even said yes to your son. who are just like, you know what? I'm gonna figure out who Jesus is and that's fine. I'm so thankful, God, that they're here. But, but with heads still bowed and eyes still closed, if that is you, if you are someone in here saying, you know what? I am so thankful. I'm so thankful that I don't have to have my life together. That I can come as I am. Just a broken, busted up, messed up sinner. And so here we, we pray the ABCs. Admit, believe, choose. And, and if you're one of those people who just wants to just follow Jesus, I would say, just pray this after me. Just say, God, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a savior. I admit that, Lord. I messed up. I deal with sin issues all the time. I'm angry all the time. I'm frustrated all the time. I'm looking at things on the computer I shouldn't look at. I'm angry at my spouse. I'm lusting, whatever, fill in the blank. Father, I admit that I'm a sinner though. But God, I believe that you sent your son that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. I believe that you sent your son to die on the cross for, for my sake so I could be considered righteous again. Lord, I believe that. And see, Lord, I choose to follow you every single day of my life. That as I wake up, I'll recognize it's about you, God. It's about you and what your son has accomplished that I would make your name known. God, we love you. It's in your sunset. Amen. Thank you for listening to the FBH podcast. We hope that you enjoyed this week's sermon. Music was by the band Broke for Free. And if you would like more information about our church, feel free to check out fbhanford.org. That's fbhanford.org. Thank you again, and we'll see you next week.